make for him a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew word there for helper suitable means completer or one that uh, completes the man. And uh, my wife, my completer, Dawn, is with us today after many weeks away recovering from surgery. So I am very thankful that she is here today because she is my best critic. And uh, she's learned not to uh, talk about the sermon at noon on Sunday, but to wait a few hours, and then, and then we can talk about it. So I'm very thankful. We're thankful for your prayers. We are thankful for your cards and for the meals that were provided to us. And uh, so we appreciate our church family. Thank you so much. Also, I want you to know that uh, I, for you Seahawk fans, I tried to get a ticker to run across the screen with the updates on the game. Just couldn't get that technology to work, though. Sorry. So you'll just have to wait and see uh, what's going on back in Minnesota. Uh, so I'm a little bit uh, uh, conflicted because my father-in-law was a die-hard Vikings fan. Uh, that's uh, many, many years ago. And uh, so when I was watching football with Richard, uh, we would have to root for the Vikings. And so you can boo if you'd like, but uh, we are... I'm hoping uh, that uh, there's a good outcome for everybody in this game. As, uh, oh, also, thank you, Dave, for uh, recapping the anniversary of uh, the Christian martyrs in the Alca tribe in Ecuador. Uh, the church in the Midwest that we had the privilege of pastoring before, uh, we did mission trips every year, and uh, they would go down to Ecuador and uh, to uh, Christian ministries there, and they'd also make a trip into where those men lived and where they left from uh, in their airplane to reach the Aukas. And if you have not read uh, Elizabeth Elliot's Through Gates of Splendor, I would highly commend that to you. It recounts uh, the events of that time. And I think there's a follow-up book, if I'm, I'm right. There's many, there's lots of books written about this event. I remember it as a child, uh, what a big deal it was in the news as well as in our own family and church as uh, we looked at the pictures in Life magazine. But uh, it's had a tremendous impact, and many have come to know Christ uh, because of their sacrifice. And even the tribe has been changed, transformed, and it's exciting. It's a neat story. And uh, so thank you, Dave, for reminding us of that this morning. Uh, this last week I was reading an older article out of the New York Times and the title of the article was, How the Worm Turns. How the Worm Turns. And the whole tenor of the article, it was focused on a group of scientists who spend their entire lives identifying and finding and tracking earthworms. Earthworms. They're called uh, oligochetologists, oligochetologists. Now, you need to know, I spent all day yesterday trying to say that. I had to get on the internet to see how to pronounce it because uh, I'm hooked on phonics, so that's uh, how that went. So I've come to the conclusion these are earthworm guys and gals, I'm assuming. But in this article in the New York Times, Dr. Sam James, you know, these guys really, they, they operate and do their work in virtual anonymity. I mean, how many of us look at earthworm guys as our heroes? I mean, maybe some of you do. But he's a researcher and uh, one of the earthworm guys from the University of Kansas. And uh, in that year that the article was written, he named 80 new earthworm uh, uh, spe species uh, in the previous 20 years. And while on a trip to Brazil, he found a pinkish-gray earthworm that was thought to be extinct for decades. 
And so that's his claim to fame in the earthworm world. And as I read that article, I was thinking back, and my interest in earthworms basically was they were bait for fishing. And you'd go out in the yard and you'd dig around and find earthworms, and I didn't realize there was a whole branch of zoology dedicated to earthworms. And as I read that article, I got to thinking uh, and puffed my chest up a little bit and said, thank you, God, that I'm not an earthworm guy and that I get to study the Bible and spend my, rather than spending my life studying earthworms. Uh, but there's a mistake in that because as I study Scripture, especially as I look at Second Peter here, this uh, book letter that we're coming back into, I realize that my attitude was a bit wrong. And uh, that's because many Christians embrace this idea that if we're involved in religious activities, uh, that's good, but then the rest of my life is kind of separate from my religious activities. And so there's what is called a secular sacred split. And all of us are in danger of that, of saying, okay, I, I put in my couple hours on Sunday morning and I teach a class and I do a wanna, but... Other than that, the rest of my life, I just live the way I want to, that sacred, secular split. And unfortunately, that means that a huge chunk of our lives is really wasted if we don't really consider that everything is sacred or should be sacred. Uh, I read these statistics. I tried to check them out on Snopes, but uh, I didn't get any hits. So, But it says the average North American will spend about 88,000 hours of their life or about 40% of their total time on earth working at a particular vocation or a job. Uh, then there's all the time doing non-work things like uh, driving your car, changing diapers, fixing a meal, helping children with homework, studying for an exam, planting flowers, taking care of the house, standing in line at the grocery store. According to the typical split we create between the sacred and secular, 88,000-plus hours of our lives don't matter to God. That's the thinking. We may not think it consciously, but that could be an attitude or a philosophy as we approach life. With this split, we are cut off from the glory of God, from a deep, abiding, joy-filled, purposeful life. It doesn't matter if you are a preacher, a Sunday school teacher, or an earthworm guy down in Brazil. It all matters. It can all be sacred. And here's the good news. According to Scripture, as we study Scripture together and individually, God didn't invent this sacred-secular split. The Bible talks only of a sin and righteousness split or a pride and humility split. But according to the biblical accounts that we read, our whole life matters to God. As you go through all of Scripture, of course, every page uh, points to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every page points uh, in some way, in some manner, in some fashion to the fact that we are sacred creatures in the sense that we have that potential in Christ. And so we come to Second Peter, and Peter is writing... Uh, to give us faithful living insights in difficult times. And uh, we will do a review because it's been quite a while since we've been in Second Peter. We started it in the fall, and then we took a break over the holidays. And, uh, but basically, all of life can be an act of worship and an opportunity to serve and be found pleasing in God's sight. And that's the challenge for us. And so what is the measurement of your spiritual life? If you, I'm reminding you, we're coming back to chapter 1 of Second Peter, and we've been here for quite a while. 
but there is a measurement here, a yardstick. Maybe a, a better uh, analogy would be a laser-like measuring beam that Peter gives us here to analyze our own lives to evaluate where we're at in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the book of 2 Peter is written to believers. He starts out identifying himself in verse 1, and then it talks about those who have received uh, a faith of the same kind as ours. So he is uh, addressing believers there in the first century. But that begs the question, what are the evidences that you are growing as a Christian? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you growing? Can you look back over the previous year and say, hey, I'm further along in my Christian walk than I was a year ago or five years ago or 20 years ago. Wherever it is, am I growing in the Christian life? And so we come to this list here, and some call it a virtue list, although the danger in that in chapter 1 is we become kind of like Benjamin Franklin. We have a virtue list for life, which maybe is not a bad thing, but I don't believe that's what Peter had in mind. Remember, we had gone through and studied together 1 Peter, the first letter that Peter wrote. And remember, 1 Peter was about uh, preparing Christians for persecution from the outside. And remember, at that time, Christians were beginning to feel the heat and the flames of persecution around them. 2 Peter is written for a different reason, not external opposition, but he's talking about internal opposition caused by false teachers within the church itself, destructive heresies he talks about in chapter 2, verse 1, which can seduce us into error and immorality if we listen to them. We, need, we have a great need for, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read through the letter of Second Peter and underline every time the word to know or knowledge or knowing occurs, it's, it's some uh, 17 times, I believe. And so there's this idea that we need to use our minds. We as Christians of all people are not to check our brains at the door. We bring our brains, our Bibles, and a pen or a pencil when we study God's Word. Second uh, Peter, if you wanted to outline it, it uh, divides uh, into four major sections. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 can be called the believer's nature, the believer's nature. And this is where we're at right now. Peter is uh, teaching us about our riches in Christ, who we are, and our response to those things. In chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, he talks about the believer's nurture. He talks about the Word of God. This is our nurture through the power of the Holy Spirit, leading us and teaching us the truth so we know. And then all of chapter 2 is the believer's nemesis, the believer's nemesis, or his enemy, and that is the false teachers. And we will spend some time in chapter 2 when we get there understanding that the threat wasn't just real in the first century, but it is real with every generation. And all we have to do is look around us to see that there's many perversions of what would be called Christianity in the world today. And then the fourth major division is chapter 3, the believer's hope, the believer's hope, and that we have the hope of the future coming, the second return, the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look forward with confidence and hope And so today, we are going to go to the sixth component of this list. Remember, in the the list, uh, in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. I want to emphasize again, we can focus 
on the imperative or the command that Peter is giving us here, supply these things, here he tells us in verse 5, for this reason, applying all diligence, and in your faith supply moral excellence, and so on. He goes through these eight qualities that we see here. But we need to remember that back up in verses 3 and 4, if you'd look at your copy of Scripture here, we have the indicative. We have the statement of our position. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a position provided by the Lord Jesus Christ declared to us in the Word of God. And this is one example of many examples. But in verse 3, he says, Seeing that his divine power, speaking of Jesus our Savior, our Lord, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So you can see there that we have been given all things in the fact of life and godliness. That same word that we're looking at further down in this virtue list, if you will, in this list of qualities that are coming forth, this idea of godliness. So the question is, is what do you think of when you think of godliness? And uh, it depends what your background is, uh, what your church experience is. If you come from a very legalistic background with lots of rules and regulations and thou shalt nots, you probably might have the idea that godliness is measured by your performance. Uh, If you have no background like that, you may be a little confused about what godliness is. But we've looked at these first five, and now we are looking at the issue of godliness. First of all, we need to understand that these imperatives, these commands that he's giving us here are based and rooted in the indicative form of the fact that God has given us all things. First of all, we can only be godly because God has given it to us. And we come to this first point uh, in, in this, pass, in this uh, thing about godliness is that godliness begins and ends with Jesus Christ. One of the issues about this word that the Apostle Peter uses here is the Greek word eusebia, and it is a word that only occurs a few times in the New Testament. Peter uses it some four times in his letter of Second Peter. Paul is really the one who has expanded upon it. Paul uses it some ten times in first and second letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus. So in order to understand the term godliness, we need to Uh, tag along with the Apostle Paul, so we'll be jumping around a bit, but we're just going to look at four things here this morning. In fact, that Greek term was so well known in the early church that there's a famous church uh, father who lived in the fourth century named Eusebius, and that was a form of the word godliness. How would you like your name to be the godly one? And uh, that would be the name you'd be known by. But we, come, we have to look in Paul's writings, Paul's letters, and the first one we look at is in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.16, if you'd like to follow along. What is the source of our godliness? All godliness begins and ends with Jesus Christ. True, accurate, authentic godliness begins and ends with Jesus Christ, with him alone. I was reading uh, one of the Max Lucado uh, articles, And uh, he was talking about this idea that we all live in a pluralistic society. And one of the famous mantras of a pluralistic society is that all roads lead to God. Have you heard that before? Maybe from a neighbor, maybe from a family member, maybe at school, at the workplace. Oh, you Christians, you're okay, but all roads lead to God. And uh, can all approaches be correct? That's the question you need to ask yourself when you 
think about when somebody makes that claim that all roads lead to heaven or lead to God? How can all religions lead to God when they are so different? We don't tolerate such logic in other manners. And Lucato goes on to say, uh, we don't pretend that all roads lead to London and all ships sail to Australia or all flights don't lead to Rome. And he goes on to give you this imaginary thing. Imagine your response to a travel agent who proclaimed they do. You tell him you need a flight to Rome, Rome, Italy. So he looks at the screen and he says, well, there's a flight to Sydney, Australia at 6 a.m. Does it go to Rome, you ask? No, but it offers great food and great movies. But I need to go to Rome, you would say. He says, well, let's see. Let me suggest Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines flies to Rome. No, but they win awards for on-time arrivals. So you're starting to get frustrated, so you reiterate, I need one airline to carry me to one place, to Rome. The agent appears kind of offended, and he says, Sir, all flights go to Rome. Well, you and I know better, don't we? And different flights have different destinations, and that's not a a thick-headed conclusion, but an honest one. Every flight does not go to Rome, and every path does not lead to God authentic godliness begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then Paul goes on to write, He who was revealed in the flesh, he was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul tells us that by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. A mystery in the New Testament is previously unknown truth. The church is referred to as a mystery because in the Old Testament, they could not see the church age. It was a mystery in that sense. It wasn't a murder mystery like we would read or watch on television. It was a previously unknown truth that was made known. So how was this mystery made known? And Paul tells us it was through Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end of true godliness. And he gives us these six different indicators here. Uh, Three of them are speaking of the heavenly realm, and three of them are speaking of the earthly realm. And Christ is the one who has brought them together. He was revealed in the flesh, that's earthly. He was proclaimed among the nations or the Gentiles, that's earthly. He believed upon in the world, that was earthly. But heavenly, he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, taken up into glory. A declaration that Christ was the fulfillment of this mystery of godliness. Because if you lived in the Old Testament, how would you know if you were godly? The only way you'd know if you're godly is if you adhered to the Mosaic Law. And you were an observant Jewish person living in Israel at that time. That's the only way you would know. And still then, you would not be fulfilling that. You would have to go give sacrifice to cover your sins. Jesus Christ is the essence of this mystery, and his work is completed. Specifically, Christ and Christ alone has bridged the gap between things that have always been poles apart. When you think about it, there's the flesh, the physical, and the spiritual. Uh, the spirit. Those are poles apart. Their angels are close to God, and Gentiles are the nations. They're farthest from God. The world, a sphere of existence, and the heaven, a future sphere of existence. But Christ is the one who has brought those together. So godliness is totally beginning and ending with Jesus Christ, and he is an infinite God. And so our godliness is sourced in Jesus Christ. Secondly, Godliness is based on the true teachings about Jesus Christ. 
Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. Paul is in the midst here in the context of combating false teachers and false teaching, and he is encouraging Timothy, and he's pointing Timothy to this issue of godliness. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verses 3 and 4, he tells Timothy, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. So there is a pattern here, and Paul is reminding Timothy, this is what you are to look out for. And he goes on in verse 4 to say that this false teacher is conceited, understands nothing, he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. But we have an indicator here that the false teachers advocated doctrine that was different from Scripture that the apostles taught. There is a, uh, a weight of doctrine of Scripture that is time-tested and given to us by God and taught to us by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the false teachers disagreed with the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always the way to spot a false teacher. They may look Christian, they may sound Christian as they use Christian language, but yet if they disagree with what Christ is taught that fosters health in others, Uh, they're a false teacher. Furthermore, verse 3, they reject the doctrine that conforms to and results in godly behavior. As Charles Ryrie said, these these elements that we're studying through in chapter 1 are not activities primarily, but they are the gifts from God based in Christ's righteousness, but yet because we have been given them, they should change our lives. So godliness is based on the true teachings about Christ. Thirdly, godliness should be seen in the lives of believers. 2 Peter 3.11, we come back to Peter's writing. In 2 Peter 3.11, we will see this when we get towards the end of this short letter. Since all things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's talking about the imminent return of Christ for the fact that the church will be caught up, for the fact that uh, godliness should be seen in our lives. So he asked this question, how, how ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How does your life reflect what Christ is showing you and given you? And really this word godliness, that Greek word, doesn't have the word God in it, and it's a reference to this worship and reverence and awesome uh, thinking about who Jesus Christ is. We don't have a secular time where we forget about Christ than a sacred time where we go to church, but it is all together in our lives. 2 Peter 3.11, he asks us, how are you to be in holy conduct in godliness? In the December 2013 issue of GQ magazine, there are two quotes that kind of illustrate for us the different worldviews and paths that are open to us to change. In fact, the first quote, the actor Matthew McConaughey, who was named Man of the Year by GQ that year, he argues, quote, I'm a fan of the word selfish, self-ish. When I say I have gotten a lot more selfish, I mean I am less concerned about what people think of me. Selfish has gotten a bad rap. You should do it for you, unquote. A few pages later in the same uh, magazine, GQ quotes the award-winner fiction writer named George Saunders. They've named him the life coach of the year, and Saunders says, the, quoting Saunders, the big kahuna of all moral questions as far as I'm concerned is ego. How do you correct the fundamental misperception that we were all born with the idea that I am central to the universe, that I am the object of all things? 
All, and, and Saunders goes on to say, all of the nasty stuff in this life comes out of that misunderstanding. McConaughey says, you should do it for you. And Saunders said, you should get over yourself. Which world worldview, which path will you choose? Godliness should be seen in the life of believers. Other corresponding passages, Paul writes about this in 1 Timothy 2.2. And we ask us to pray for our leaders in our nation, <clears throat> pray for kings and all who are in authority, why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He's calling upon us to live that way. In 1 Timothy 6.11, flee from these things, you man of God, uh, and pursue, pursue righteousness, godliness, same word, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then in Titus, when he writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, he uses the antonym of the word we're looking at. And he says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, that's the antonym, the opposite word, and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. In those three short sentences, we get the three tenses of salvation. What a great declaration so summarized here. First of all, in verse 11, yeah, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. That's justification, freeing us from the penalty of sin. And that is the past tense. I was saved from the penalty of sin, instructing us to deny ungodliness. That's sanctification. I am being saved from the very power of sin. That is the present tense. And then looking for the blessed hope and appearing of glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's glorification. That's when we see him face to face in heaven. That is being freed and released from the very power of sin. Very presence of sin, excuse me, the very presence of sin. And he goes on in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us for every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Sadly, many Christians, in fact, believe that I must do good deeds to be pure. That's got it backwards. The reality, what it says here, is my purity, because of what Christ has given me, should produce good deeds. I don't produce good deeds to be pure. The purity that I have, my position in Christ, should reflect upon my condition in this world. Purity is what produces good deeds. And then fourthly, as we look at this word godliness, it's valuable both in this world and in the world to come. First Timothy 4.8, again, Paul writes, For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Uh, he's encouraging Timothy here in chapter 4, verse 8, not to be uh, embroiled in these debates about fables and these false teachers, but uh, that they need to be working on his own godliness, that he should recognize and train himself in godliness. I remember a show many, many years ago. Many of you don't know who Dick Cavett was, but he was a nighttime talk show host. And uh, Dick Cavett had a bodybuilder on one time. And the bodybuilder came out in his bodybuilding suit, and he was just just ripped guy, you know, just muscles everywhere. And he flexed and posed, and, and Dick Cavett had him sit down and said, what is that for? And the bodybuilder said, well, you know, and he, he flexed and he posed. And, and Dick Cavett said again, what is all that for? 
And he did that about three times, and finally the bodybuilder just gave up because he didn't have an answer. And uh, that's the idea there is that it's valuable. Physical discipline is valuable in this world, but godliness is more valuable. Uh, There is some, some profit in physical discipline, but it says little profit because godliness is profitable. So one evidence that the Holy Spirit is active in your life is that you are growing in the character trait of godliness, that this character is growing in your life, that you don't make decisions like you used to, that were, as you look back, were decisions that were not godly, but yet because of God's godliness given to you, that purity that results in good works. Uh, I don't quote Francis Chan too often, but in a message he gave, entitled uh, Think Hard and Stay Humble, Francis Chan told this following story, and so I'm indebted to him. And he talked about a man named Vaughn who basically radiated Christ, who was very godly. He had godliness, which was showing to many around him. Uh, Francis Chan writes that a few years ago, a missionary came to our church and told a beautiful story about sharing the gospel with a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea. At the end of the story, this missionary said, I should really give the credit to Vaughn, my former youth pastor, who loved me and inspired me to live for Christ and share the gospel with others. The next week, Chan writes, another guy came to our church and he challenged us to start sponsoring children living in poverty. The second speaker also concluded his presentation by saying, I'm involved in this ministry because of my youth pastor, a guy named Vaughn. And to my surprise, I found out both of those presenters were talking about the same youth pastor, the same man. And then the following week, another speaker named Daniel told us about his ministry at a rescue mission in the inner city of Los Angeles. After this man's presentation, I casually mentioned uh, that that was so weird the last two weeks. Both of our presenters had a a connection to this guy named Vaughn, their youth pastor, when they were teenagers. And Dan looked surprised. Then he told me, he said, I know Vaughn. He's a pastor in San Diego now, and he takes people into the dumps of Tijuana where kids pick through the garbage. And I was just with Vaughn in Tijuana, and we would walk in the city, and these kids would run up to him, and he would show such deep love and affection for them. He'd hug them and have gifts and food for them. He'd figure out how to get them showers. And Francis, it was eerie. The whole time I was talking to Vaughn, I kept thinking, if Jesus was on, uh, on earth, I think this is what it would feel like to walk with him. He just loved everyone he ran into and would tell them about God. People were just drawn to his affection and his obvious love. And then Daniel said this, The day I spent with Vaughn was the closest I've ever experienced to walking with Jesus. Francis Chan says, Hearing this made me think, Would anyone in their right mind say that about me? Would anyone say that about you? As I thought about all this, I prayed, Lord, that's what I want. I don't want to be the best speaker in the world. That doesn't matter. I don't want to be the most intelligent person in the world. Uh, That doesn't matter. That's not what I want to be known for. I want to be known for someone saying, wow, he's a lot like Jesus, unquote. So that's the question. Does God's godliness in Christ, this mystery of godliness that Christ fulfills, that we have received, as Peter has told us, is it reflected in and through our lives to those around us? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Apostle Peter. Thank you for superintending, caring for, protecting your words that you spoke through him and given it to us. 
Thank you for these different qualities, these eight qualities that Peter has listed for us. And thank you that even though they're in the imperative and the command, they rest upon the standard of Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he has given us that position and he has given us the ability, the opportunity, and the potential to reflect these qualities that he has endeared in us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day and for each one here. In Jesus' name, amen.